and from listener donations at wjffradio.org. WJFF Jeffersonville. You're listening to Radio Catskill. This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard's Star Talk report describes NASA's 10 new astronaut candidates. Sweetwater fishing guide Evan Padua has a hooked on fishing report for the Upper Delaware River. Along the Poets Road, Christine San Jose narrates on the seasonal theme of snow and ice. Stephanie Phillips shares comments with Nico Juarez about problems with beavers for her segment Now You Know. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country. First, news headlines from NPR. NPR News, I'm Barbara Klein. A tsunami advisory is in effect along the Pacific U.S. coast, from Alaska to the Mexican border, as well as Hawaii, after an undersea volcano erupted off the Pacific island nation of Tonga. Tsunami alerts have been issued in New Zealand. Radio New Zealand's Moira Tulia Pataylor spoke to the BBC. That eruption was heard in New Zealand, parts of New Zealand, which is more than 2,300 kilometres away, and it was also heard in Fiji, which is 500 kilometres away. Before we lost communication with a lot of people, they were saying that they could still see um, kind of like lightning strikes and thunder out by the volcano. Communications with Tonga are cut off. The U.S. says it has credible intelligence that Russia plans to stage an incident inside Ukraine to give Moscow an excuse to invade. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports Ukrainians say they're used to such tactics. Using hybrid tactics like creating chaos so they can present themselves as peacekeepers is exactly what the Russians did in 2014 with Crimea and eastern Ukraine, says retired Ukrainian General Volodymyr Havrilov. But he doesn't think there will be a full-scale invasion. They like to bully others uh, with a military stick, watching what is going on after that, and trying to get some concessions to frighten Ukraine, to provoke and uh, frighten the Western countries as well. Havrilov says there's an adage about Russia and Ukraine that still rings true. For them to lose Ukraine, it means to lose empire. So without Ukraine, Russia will never be an empire. He says Ukrainians understand this very well. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Kiev. The White House and Senate Democrats say they're planning to move ahead with legislation that would strengthen voting rights at the federal level. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports. Senate Republicans reject the legislation outright and have repeatedly blocked it in the evenly split chamber. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer had set a January 17th deadline to vote on eliminating a long-standing Senate rule, the filibuster, in order to push this legislation through. But two moderate Democrats, Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, say they'll vote no. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says President Biden will continue to fight. You heard him say this week that voting rights, the rights of people to express their views at the polls, uh, is something that is fundamental to him, and uh, he's going to stay at it. The Senate has postponed its recess next week in order to take up the legislation, with or without votes, to pass it. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. 
Martin Luther King III and his family are leading a voting rights rally in Phoenix, Arizona today, and former President Donald Trump has scheduled a counter-rally. This is NPR. Support comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections, with showrooms at Lake Wall and Poppock, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farming Country. Coming up on today's show, we'll hear a winter fishing report from Evan Padua, who's a Delaware River fishing guide with a sense of humor. We'll have an icy narration of poetry from Christine San Jose and a conversation about problems with beavers with Stephanie Phillips and Nico Juarez. But first, here's Keith Hubbard with this week's Star Talk report. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. For Farm and Country, I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. Last month, NASA selected 10 new astronaut candidates who will hopefully join the ranks of the 44 active astronauts at NASA. The new candidates were chosen from more than 12,000 applicants. The applicant pool represented all 50 states, the District of Columbia, and the U.S. territories of Puerto Rico, Guam, the Virgin Islands, and Northern Mariana Islands. This is the first new class of astronauts in four years, with the prior class graduating 11 astronauts in January 2020. The candidates will report to the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas this month to begin two years of training. The astronaut candidate training is extensive and falls into five categories. Operating and maintaining the International Space Station, training for spacewalks, developing robotic skills, safely operating a P-30 training jet, and Russian language skills. Once their training is completed, the candidates could be assigned to missions aboard the ISS as well as deep space missions to the moon on NASA's Orion spacecraft. The 10 candidates chosen are 4 women and 6 men. 8 of the 10 candidates are members of the military, representing every branch except the Army and Space Force. The other two are a bioengineering professor and a medical physicist. Together, they aspire to one day join the list of more than 600 people who have gone to space. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. Radio Catskill and Farm and Country, this is Evan Padua, bringing you Hooked on Fishing. Hey 
Happy 2022 to everyone out there. Just as the new year turned, Old Man Winter showed up in our upper Delaware Valley. There was open water and days in the 40s right up until the first week of the new year. Any open water I can find in the winter, I generally try to fish it. Usually open water is best fished on days where the temperature crests over 30 degrees for a daytime temperature. This gives your gear and your fingers a chance to warm up and work correctly until they are totally frozen. Personally, once the Delaware River becomes a steady ice flow and the area's lakes all freeze up, I spend most of my winter casting a play mouse in the living room and catching my cat over and over. It is good practice and simulation of catching fish. Ice fishing poles and reels are good for living room kitty fishing. I do also get tempted on nicer winter days to go out on areas farm ponds and lakes in pursuit of panfish for wintertime fish fries. Be sure there is at least a minimum of three inches of ice on any lake or pond you plan to ice fish. Knowing where the depth changes, structure, or inflows and outflows of lakes are good and they will help you choose a good ice fishing location. If you do not know or have any idea of where to start on a frozen lake or pond, begin by drilling a series of holes in a zigzag pattern starting in one area, setting up tip-ups or jigging rods, and trying to locate the best fish habitat. Once you catch a few fish, it is likely that the productive area will be small and the fish will be schooled up around your most productive hole in the ice. Swedish pimples, small spoons, and UV reactive jig heads baited with mousies or small minnows are generally a productive bait or technique for ice fishing. Please be sure to know the laws and species limits for any fish you plan to keep for table fare. A good practice is not to kill your limit, but limit your kill. A sustainable and non-wasteful amount. Be safe while winter fishing and enjoy the cool, brisk air. For Radio Catskill, Farm and Country, and Hooked on Fishing, this has been Evan Padua, casting off. For WJFF and Farm and Country, this is Christine San Jose. Today we're facing snow and ice. First in the company of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Snowflakes. Out of the bosom of the air, out of the cloud folds of her garment shaken, over the woodlands brown and bare, over the harvest fields forsaken, silent and soft and slow descends the snow. Even as our cloudy fancies take suddenly shape in some divine expression, 
even as the troubled heart doth make in the white countenance confession. The troubled sky reveals the grief it feels. This is the poem of the air, slowly in silent syllables recorded. This is the secret of despair, long in its cloudy bosom hoarded, now whispered and revealed to wood and field. Well, that's an interesting thought. Snow is the expression, the confession of grief. Snow is the secret of despair revealed. Is there perhaps some comfort in the idea that sharing grief so often helps to lessen it and to move beyond, and that a secret told is no longer a secret? It will have lost its hold. Longfellow's poem makes an interesting companion, I think, to this one from Sarah Teasdale. She calls her poem, Let It Be Forgotten. Let it be forgotten as a flower is forgotten, forgotten as a fire that once was singing gold. Let it be forgotten for ever and ever. Time is a kind friend. He will make us old. If anyone asks, say, it was forgotten long, long ago, as a flower, as a fire, as a hushed footfall in the long-forgotten snow. And what of the ice? Well, my wise friend from South Carolina, who grew up in Pennsylvania, so she knows her ice, Dawn Watkins Apelian, brings her poet's wisdom to icebreakers. She says, Open the ice with an axe, and it splinters a ragged crack. Open the ice with warmth, and it slowly of itself draws back. Speak sharply to an enemy, and you may fall through and drown. Speak softly to him, and neither of you goes down. Hmm. Wise words, Dawn. Thank you. And shared with us by Highlights for Children, a couple of reminders from those who can be truly wise among us, the kids. When it comes to ice, here's Dylan May from Michigan. Icicles gleaming in the sun. Soon there will be none. And this from Hunter, 12, from Mississippi. What do they know of winter down there? Well, with climate chaos, they'll probably be knowing a whole lot more. Anyway, here is what Hunter has to say. Winter. Winter. So cold, yet so beautiful. I shiver from head to toe. I watch snowflakes fall, each one its own, each one different. They cover leafless trees. The trees now are not so bare. Even the ground is white and glistening, singing its own special song. The winter air chills my bones. But the winter beauty warms me. Well, it is beautiful, isn't it? Especially when we get a blue sky on the snow. 
And don't you love it when the branches are all rimmed with sparkling ice? This has been Christine San Jose for Farm and Country along the Poets Road. Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. This morning I'm in the machine shop of Nico Juarez in Youngsville. Impressive as Nico is as a fabricator, I'm not going to ask him about that because I really want to know about beavers and Nico is an expert. Nico, where are you from and what's your background? Hi, I am originally actually from the Seattle area. Seattle, Washington area, yes. I was actually born in the L.A. region, and as a very young kid, I moved to Seattle, where I was raised for the most part, and a little bit in Alaska and also Minnesota. What's your background? I do fabrication, steel fabrication, and I build anything from metal. How long have you lived up here? I moved here with my partner. I actually was on a farm a little bit north of the San Francisco region. I had met my life partner who I'm with today and she was accepted to a program here in New York and we moved to New York 2009. So it's been some years. Why did you become interested in beavers and how did you learn so much about them? I've always thought that the beaver is an animal that I could relate with being industrious. And I think people used to just tease me, hey, you act like a beaver. I guess I always just affiliated my relationship to them. And I always just thought that they were very special from afar, really. And in fact, I became very interested in beaver in a way that has actually changed my life because I witnessed when we moved here in 2016 there's this really special place it's a wetland protected wetland at the end of my road called Cackletown. Cackletown pond is what we call it nice beautiful 14 acre wonderful spot that i would kayak and canoe and and really just do a lot of exploring and i would go early in the morning i would go late at night and, and just witness these beaver beaver activity and just be fascinated by this ecosystem that they created. And I I just fell deeply in love with them. And I really started to understand what kind of environment they created. As a matter of fact, kind of in a devastating way, because there was a developer, is a developer that that moved in um, to the end of this road, uh, about a 250 acre parcel that has many sensitive species living on it. And he had this idea to trap and kill the beavers and drain the wetland, which is what he's done. So I have firsthand, I guess you could say witness to, if you remove the keystone species being the beaver, 
the collapse of the ecosystem thereafter. And so at that moment, I decided I want to take matters into my own hand and really understand the species, really dive in head first. And so I contacted this, you would call him a mentor, I suppose. His name is Mike Callahan from Massachusetts. He's been working to mitigate uh, beaver issues, uh, although I, I don't really call them issues, but they can create issues for 20 years in Massachusetts. And it turns out there's a very large community of people And when I say community, I I don't mean just people who think that beavers are cute. I really mean a community of very intelligent scientists and biologists who have, over the course of 20 plus years, created and have gathered a lot of data on the importance of what wetlands create, the ecosystem of wetlands. And of course, the beavers are the head of that, let's say, the engineers. Well, that's a sad story. I hope that it changes around here due to your activities. Can you tell me if there's any relationship between your love of beavers and your beaver activism, as it were, and your fabrication business? You know, I suppose that there is a correlation. I really like to problem solve. So I think you could say safely that when I get involved in a building project, A lot of that just really starts as a concept or say a picture or an inspirational concept and picture that maybe a design firm contacts me and says, hey, we want this thing and and I'll look at it and I really have to figure out nuts and bolts how it goes from concept to this functional piece, functional, beautiful piece. And so I get really into solving, solving problems. And so I think that with this background of you know this sort of industrious background if you will and the building skills that I possess I decided to understand how to really build these these what we call flow devices in a way that is a really how do I say it's a it's a sturdy device it's something that in fact actually part of these devices it it's actually quite simple it's a part of it is what we call really a a beaver baffle and that's for, it's it's made from heavy-duty fencing, really. I think to date, I would be the first one to say that I'm fabricating them. So that's to say that the other variation to do this is with what they call hog ring use. I guess it's what folks do for fencing, and you it requires these special pliers and, and these um, like C-clips, if you will, and you kind of have to you know move around and clip these things together. But I have made some prototypes from really just welding the fencing together, and it's a very, very sturdy. It's a nice combination of combining the fabrication of, and these devices. Are there especially large number of beavers in the area where you're living now? I wouldn't say that there's an especially large population. The population today is very different than it was during the fur trade when the settlers came and they almost wiped out the species entirely from the 1600s to the 1900s because of what they call beaver pelts, uh, brown gold. I don't know if people are aware, but the beaver fur is a very, well, certainly was sought after fur because of its waterproofing capabilities and just how wonderful of a pelt it is. It turns out that you can felt beaver fur into these hats that were popular way back when. 
tall hats, I guess is what they call them. And that was quite popular for a good couple hundred years. And that caused the settlers to really start in this region in the early 1600s and just move westward, completely changing the landscape. I just described how I'm a singular person who witnessed a singular wetland being destroyed. Can you imagine this attempt to gain all these pelts and just what was left in the wake of removing the species in these low-lying areas was a devastating move, I think, on our part because what happened is, well, when the settlers came through and they obliterated, nearly obliterated, almost made the species extinct, they changed the landscape because we built in low-lying areas. So now we have an issue when the beavers are back and we have these developments in these low-lying areas that's where we find that we're butting heads because we're such a similar species we change the land it's we really are the only species that at least that, that i'm aware of that can physically change the landscape in the way that it does are beavers rodents they're a lot bigger than most rodents that you think about yeah they are considered of the rodent tier and they're more closely related to a squirrel than say a mouse in terms of how they behave, being vegetarians. How big does a beaver get? What they call the young, the newborn is a kit. Beaver kits are born and they're just around a pound. The adults can be anywhere from 40 to 60 pounds. That's big. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. What do they eat? They're vegetarian. Beavers eat the cambium from sticks, from alder, um, from aspen, so they prefer the deciduous trees. Yeah, the cambium is the living part just underneath the bark that you see, so I guess maybe it's more delicious than the bark itself. Yes, I think they spit out the bark, and they do eat the sugary part. And then, of course, they use what's left, which is, of course, a lot, and they use the remaining sticks for building material. Are their teeth special or specially adapted to be able to chew through bark? So beaver's teeth, and and I have here a skull that I found actually at Cackletown Wetland, and you can see there that the teeth for this young beaver is quite orange, and that's actually a layer of iron that they get from the cambium from the bark. Their teeth continue to grow, much like horses, so they need to continue to gnaw and keep their teeth sharpened. Nico, I see that beavers are protected in most states. Why do some states protect the beavers? Well, here in New York, I believe the DEC has about a dozen regions. We here are in Region 3, so I'm familiar with DEC's Region 3 and their trapping program. I think it's a good question because here in New York, they're not protected. In fact, actually, you as a landowner can call the DEC and say, hey, I have a roadway or I have a culvert and the beavers. The moment you say beavers, they issue you what they call a nuisance beaver permit. And that's to trap and kill without really holistically looking at the situation. So it should be really known, I think think in the DEC that a lot of these wetlands are habitat for species of special concern and threatened species. In my opinion, I think the DEC could perhaps do a better job at holistically looking at each 
wetland, especially if it's protected, to understand if they're species of special concern or threatened species. And if they take that keystone species away, what is the downfall of these special species or threatened species? So now you know about the tensions that often exist between human builders and beavers. You've heard today from Nico Juarez, who does what he can to reduce those tensions. Please email me at stephanie at wjffradio.org and let me know about other local folks who can share their expertise on farm and country topics. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard, Evan Padua, Christine San Jose, and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guest, Nico Juarez, speaking on the topic of problems with beavers. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farming Country on Radio Catskill public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability a community-supported, science-based nonprofit, taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org Martin Luther King Jr. grew up with church songs, and he saw music as the natural tool to advance the civil rights movement. I'm Terrence McKnight. Please join me for a beautiful symphony of brotherhood with the music that inspired Dr. King and the powerful